The Pod Doctors is brought to you by the Kindle book, Saving Limbs, Saving Lives, Advanced Treatments to Prevent Amputations in Diabetic Populations. This book by Dr. Damien Dauphiné discusses specific patient cases in diabetic limb preservation, which highlight the modern use of wound care technology that has exploded in the last 20 years. With only one advanced therapy available in 1999, there are now hundreds of options to help close chronic wounds in diabetic patients. Dr. Dauphiné distills these options down to show patients and physicians treating these patients how combinations of these products can be used to save limbs and save lives. Welcome to The Pod Doctors. I'm Dr. Damien Dauphiné, board-certified foot and ankle surgeon, and my partner, Dr. Rafa Hussein, fellowship-trained podiatric surgeon, and we are The Pod Doctors. Each week, The Pod Doctors will be discussing aspects of podiatric medicine and surgery to educate our audience on common foot and ankle problems and the latest treatment options available. We hope to bring you interesting and informative shows each week discussing all the crazy ways that our wonderful foot can malfunction and cause us problems. So please find us on all the platforms where you find your typical podcasts, uh, Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, and YouTube where you can view our videos. So please like and subscribe, and we will see you next time on The Pod Doctors. Welcome to The Pod Doctors. I'm Dr. Damien Dauphiné. I'm here with my partner, Dr. Rafi Hussain. Today, we're going to talk about a little slip and fall injury, a good winter topic here. We're about to supposedly have snow this weekend here in the Dallas area. I don't know if the meteorologists are just teasing us or if that's actually going to happen. Hopefully no ice. Probably not enough to cause slip and fall. But, uh, you know, there are clearly other places in the country that are dealing with winter weather, and this is a you know significant source of slip and fall ankle fractures so uh let's uh let's jump right in here and talk a little bit about common ankle fractures uh symptoms that people would uh, typically present with if they don't show up in the uh, er and then what we do to work them up and what we do to fix them so how do you discern ankle fractures from ankle sprains or twisted ankles or whatever you want to call them they all present about the same swelling tenderness pain Unability to uh, stand upon it. It's just your classic ankle injury. Now, with ankle fractures, this is my personal opinion, I typically see more bruising. Uh, maybe, but I've seen horrendous bruising from just a really wicked sprain as well. Yeah, and so, true. you know, patients always say, if, if I can weight bear on it, it's obviously not broken, and that's clearly not the case. No. So we both have seen significant ankle fractures where the patient comes in and they've been walking on it for two weeks, and the fibula is really not connected any <laughs> longer. So, um, you know, you could have uh, a dislocation where you can clearly see the foot is no longer attached to the leg. That's not hard to figure out and you've yeah. got some great little that's the easy videos stuff. yeah those are the easy ones you're like okay yeah that's fractured we should probably go to the or and fix that i uh one time had to close reduce an ankle fracture in office and the lady had it for about two three weeks if i remember correctly oh my goodness uh, she fell in her backyard just like you know pothole injury and she presents she's like i've been trying to get around and i definitely think it's broken <laughs> this lady i kid you not at like a 30-degree angle of where her foot and her ankle was. I had a number up in office, close reduce it because the bone is pushing on that skin and getting her like that little black S-star. Sure, sure. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, that's that's not typical. Usually the ones that walk in the office are they think they had an ankle sprain and then yeah. you get an x-ray and you realize, okay, they've they fractured the fibula. And if it's well positioned, you know, you can cast them and they'll do great. I think the you know, the literature would support a more than a two millimeter, two millimeter deviation. Gap. Then it's probably a good idea to take them to the OR and fixate that. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk ankle anatomy. What actually makes up your ankle? So here, if you're watching the slides, you got the fibula on the lateral side of your ankle. The lateral side is the outside. And then your tibia, the medial side of your ankle. Um, also commonly referred to your medial malleolus and lateral malleus. Those are the bumps on the outside of your ankle. Attached to those, you have a bunch of ligaments. Um, but today we'll be talking about fractures and mostly the bony component of it. But uh, you will see that a lot of ankle fractures that we treat do have a soft tissue uh, component when we're talking about going in and fixing it surgically. Here's some x-rays. I got the lateral view right here. You can see the fibula behind the tibia, a little shadow. Um, and when you're looking at these x-rays, you're kind of looking for a couple things. Right there in front of you, obviously, it's easy to see. But what we're looking for are little, little telltale signs, the small flecks, the break in the cortex. That's the edge of your bone. You sort of think of it like the... Uh, like an eggshell. Eggshell, mm -hmm. exactly. Uh, you're looking at that little pocket right here between your Achilles and your ankle joint, that Kager's triangle. If there's significant swelling, you'll see that completely uh, obliterated. And then obviously gapping. If there's significant gapping between your tibia and fibula or between your tibia and your talus, uh, then we obviously know there's something going on. Well, yeah, the view on the right, if you saw... You know, medial deviation where you see the gapping uh, broader at the medial side. You can point to that maybe. There you go. If you see a, a medial clear space gapping there, then you know that talus has shifted. It's pushed the fibula. And then you look up the fibula. And, and if your picture's not going high enough, you may need to get a long leg view yeah. to be able to see the fibula higher up. Yeah. And what Dr. D is talking about, something specifically called a maize new fracture. I got right. a couple of pictures that I think you're going to like. Good. Those are fun. So classification systems, I'm not going to go through and teach you the classification systems because it's not going to make a difference to you, but understand that there's two major classification systems that we talk about, the Dennis Weber, which is typically used primarily for fibular fractures, and the Log Hansen that we use because it actually shows a guideline of how the fracture progressed. So things that you may not see, obviously, on the x-rays, you may be able to catch up if you understand the uh, mechanism mechanism so of injury. It, it's trying to, yeah, it's trying to marry what's happening with the bone to the mechanism of the injury. And that's why the log Hansen system is still used today. And this is typically commonly more used in adults and children. Mm -hmm. We'll talk about the more common type of fractures. Quick slide on Dennis Weber. Uh, just like I talked about the ABC. fibula, we yeah. decide if it's type a, which is below the syndesmosis, the type B, which is at the syndesmosis, which is the um, attachment of your tibia and fibula right above your ankle joint. And then your type C, which is higher up. And we can use this to kind of determine your Log Hansen classification also. Log Hansen, quick overview. If you're interested, look through the slides. If you're not interested, keep on listening. There's probably a good YouTube video that gets yeah, more sure. in depth. But, the, you know, the, from a patient's perspective, yeah, it's not that critical. If you guys do want to understand this type of um, ankle fractures, let us know. I mean, I yeah. don't mind going through this stuff. This know. stuff is tons of fun. And I'll show tons of clips on people getting injured. <laughs> here's something that you know typically presents a patient came in rolled their ankle it's been bothering them so we look at the x-rays uh, you can see the obvious fracture on the fibula 
You see that gapping in that medial clear space that Dr. D was talking about, that shift, telltale signs. If you understand the mechanism of injury, then you're also looking for what progresses after in that Long Hansen classification system. I have a little cheat because I made the slides, so I know exactly where to look, but if so, you look at back here, so that, that patient may, that patient may have not only the yeah the, a posterior fleck, but also a deltoid ligament yeah. rupture. Yeah, spot on. So, boom, ding. Fibular fracture, that deltoid ligament tear. The ligament didn't tear. The deltoid ligament, the one that makes up the medial malleolus to your uh, talus and into your calcaneus. If that didn't tear. Uh, then your medial would break. That's where you have the obvious fracture on the right. tibia. One or the other. It's going to happen with that kind of a force. Beautifully done, whoever repaired this. Thin anatomic plate, lateral fibula, compression screw. People typically ask, what's that screw that's floating in there? That's your compression screw. That's literally bringing the fracture together. Right. And, and your, then, your your plate is simply a buttress. Yeah. yeah. Hold it steady. And then they can see that they've reduced it well because that gap is gone now. Mm-hmm. Now, that would be interesting to see a CT of, to see if they put the fibula back into the notch. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But that's just a technical issue that plagues us consistently with ankle fracture repair. So here's another example. Very obvious fracture. Oh, yeah. Look at Gosh. that fibula. Comminuted. That medial mal transverse fracture. Gapping. That's that not gapping. That is going beyond the, uh, the osteocytic jumping distance. <laughs> So your your osteocyte's not gonna not gonna jump that distance. So you can see this was beautifully done again. Fibular plate, this screw right here coming across the tibia and fibula. Uh, that's to reduce the syndesmosis. Sometimes people like to use the suture rope, the fiber wire. Uh, what's <laughs> that, the one? That, that screw's uh, broken. Am I in the middle? Yeah. So this so is this probably is... an older X-ray. So that's a very right. common question. So yeah. if you're using your syndesmotic screws and you're using one screw, my, I don't, I don't want to like go on to my treatment plans, but typically I'll put a screw across there and tell the patients that it's going to break. It's known to break, very known to break. Sometimes people will put two or three across there. So, uh, so clearly that's a, that's a post-op film. Oh yeah. yeah. And we're seeing the fibulas healed at that point. So that's, that's actually an expected result. Expected. Yeah. Typically tell them right. about the 10 to 12 week mark. We'll go in and remove that screw. And if the hardware is bothering, we remove everything. It doesn't make a difference at this point because the bone's healed. Yeah, that's the other thing that people don't understand is, go back to that slide real quick, that, that once six or eight weeks go by, all of that hardware is obsolete. Yeah. So we don't plan on taking it out, but there are certain times when the screw backs out or you start getting a, a prominence or maybe a particular patient yeah. doesn't like the way it feels in, in boots that they like to wear and we have to go the in and take it The lateral fibula, very yeah. common. People will complain about it. So a lot of the anatomic plates... Uh, will contour to the bone. Sometimes they'll be posterior, mm-hmm. um, but the people that doesn't have a lot of meat over it, so sometimes you'll feel it, and it's not unheard of to go in and remove those. Right. They're not really accomplishing anything once the bone's healed. They're just hanging yeah. out. Yeah. Here's uh, oh. the maze new fracture. Yeah. Look at that video. Oh, yeah. Awesome. Sometimes you'll have a patient come in, we'll do the x-rays, and you're like, oh, I don't see a fracture. But look at the telltale signs. You've got that medial gap, that loss of syndesmosis apposition and what you look for when you do your stages of fractures you know that there's a tear across here you know there's a tear across the syndesmosis there's something going on with the fibula and you can see that what's called a maisonu fracture now there's arguments if you should or should not repair them i'm not going to go into that but 
there's your problem. You know, if they had perineal issues, if they had a nerve issue at that site, yeah. you might consider it. But So if you yeah. remember our nerve entrapment conversation, uh, video, lecture, mm-hmm. podcast, whatever you want to call it, uh, that common peroneal nerve um, palsy where you get the foot drop we were talking about, that's how it could happen sometimes. That fracture, you get that deviation of that bone or that bone callus or that impingement for whatever amount of time or surgery if you wanted and fixed right. it. Very just easy to injure Fibrosis, that yeah, just you get fibrosis in or scars in poorly. So that's definitely something uh, that you need to look for weeks down the line. Yeah, I bet you this lady won a bunch <laughs> of money and paid for her surgery. You're quoting the uh, the website there. Does that seriously say farticles? Where does it say that? <laughs> oh, my God. I literally copied and pasted it. I, I give credit where credit's due. It's an amazing farticle. <laughs> The F article. Uh, that's funny. So types of fixation. This is just a broad overview. The before and after, plates, screws, these little tags that you see here on the side, that's that suture rope that we were talking about. I typically prefer the suture rope. It just works well. The benefit of this versus screws is when you're using screws, you are set in a specific alignment, and you don't know if that fibula is going to reduce back into that groove uh, where the tibia uh, allows it to sit. Now, when you do that suture button, you're allowed a little bit of leeway whenever yeah. you type compress those type of um, uh, injuries. Yeah, and there are, and there are times in our diabetic population where we don't want to put in internal fixation. Maybe they've got tremendous swelling, or, or your skin envelope is is cruddy. In other words, if you've got a patient who has pretty significant skin issues. Uh, you don't want to operate through that. Um, if they have fracture blisters, you don't want to operate yeah. through that. So that's where that external fixator up, up top there. Those are great because you can temporarily fixate and allow things to calm down, allow the swelling to come down, and then decide if you need to go in and, and augment with some internal fixation. So, Yeah, just like Dr. D said, if you have an open lesion, we're trying to avoid surgery because that's risk for infection. Right. You can use that delta frame to get you that distraction, kind of hold that position well, and hopefully go back in later and appropriately, you know, repair it. What do you think of uh, this one? I put this one here for a reason. What do you think of that reduction? That's terrible. Yeah, so that's what we were talking about, that yeah. proper reduction of that syndesmosis. Those screws aren't probably big enough or long enough. Yeah. If you're going to use those as syndesmotic screws, yeah, they just didn't go far or enough. Or they probably didn't clamp it. Yeah. I mean, they might have just thrown it blind. Right. Here's a great reduction right here. Mm-hmm. This right here is a IM nail, intramedullary nail for the fibula. Works great. You're going to get great reduction of that fracture because you're literally going through this natural canal, your bony right. canal. We used to call those, well, the other than the fixation component, they used to call them rush rods where you just go, yeah, that rod up there. But the, the fixation that allows the stability for that particular product is great. Yep. Yeah, these plates and screws and hardwares, whatever you want to call them, they've gotten so advanced. Before, you'd have to cut and mold your own plate I remember when we had to do that back in training. Yeah, you had sink, to literally bend these. your own plates, <laughs> cut them to length. Oh, I need an eight hole, but we only have a 12 hole, you know. <laughs> it's nice to have that perspective, though, because when we go to Mexico and operate, sometimes, yeah. you know, we're, we were dealing with um, less than optimal internal fixation options. And you have to be able to think on your feet and say, OK, I don't have exactly what I need. What can I use that will approach that? and approximate that so that I get a good result regardless. And so yeah. I think that was, that was always good for the residents to experience that you're not going to always have everything you absolutely need. And you could have a, a case where, where stuff gets 
lost and doesn't yeah. show up to your case. And so, yeah, you need to be able to have backups for your backups. Yeah. It's just the reality. Because the surgery has to get done. It has right. to be fixed. Right. When, what about uh, hook plates? I'm a big fan of those hook plates. Before they'd even make them for the medial mal or the, or the lateral mal, you'd have to cut the plates and bend the twines down because sometimes that little avulsion would be too small to put a screw through. And you're like, should I do a K-wire? I might not get great reduction. Should I do, um, what's that called? Where you do the, the crisscross? Circlage. Circlage wire. Yeah. We're getting, a little, we're, we're getting a little technical, but we're, these are really fun to do, and they can be challenging because the fracture patterns can can be very comminuted, or, or there can be multiple pieces, in other words. So this one on your far left here, that was a challenging fracture, I'm yeah. sure, because that you had comminutia or or multiple pieces of the fibula, multiple pieces of the tibia, and 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 uh, you know syndesmotic injury. So that that's a challenging ankle fracture to repair, but th they're fun to do. Yeah, and worst comes to worst, we can always go and replace the ankle joint. Yeah, or fuse it. That's not what I'm you want right. to look forward to. I'm just joking. That's 100% a joke. But again, you have to understand that uh, once you've had a significant ankle injury like this, the joint's never going to be the same. Yeah, you're going to have an, arthritis. You're going to probably end up with some early post-traumatic arthritis despite a tremendous result. Uh, you know, this on the far left, I wouldn't call that a tremendous result because of the syndesmosis has not been appropriately addressed. So that, that patient either is going to have to have that surgery uh, augmented or redone. But, you know, in most of these cases where they look like the internal fixation has been placed appropriately and you've got good alignment, these people are still going to probably have some issues with that joint down the line. Yeah, it's not uncommon that I tell patients after we do an ankle fracture, Maybe a year or so down the line, if you're having ankle pain, we may go in, scope out that ankle, mm -hmm. clean up any of that scar tissue that might have formed there. If there's a violation of the ankle joint itself, you know, there might be microdrilling that we need to go in and do, you know, osteochondral lesions that we need to fix. Cartilage destruction, you could have subchondral bone or bone underneath the cartilage that's damaged that you need to address. So yeah, down the line, those cartilaginous or, or osteochondral defects are, are sometimes what really causes chronic pain. So after surgery, what are we looking at? Cast, uh, very simple, very effective, works great at holding that uh, correction. A lot of people have been shying away from cast. And I think for fractures, it's a, it's a phenomenal thing, even if only for the first few weeks. Holds that correction well, giving your hardware uh, less stress. Well, and, and whether you use a cam boot, which is you know, a prefabricated cam boot, or you use a fiberglass, probably doesn't matter except I kind of make that decision based on the patient's personality and whether or not yeah. I can trust them. Because <laughs> a lot of patients think the cam boot means that you can walk in it. Or they literally don't wear it uh, for yeah. a significant percentage of the day. There was a study that Armstrong and Lavery did on cam boot use. This was in diabetic patients, but they had a device in the boot and a device at their hip that was like a pager. And those two were connected electronically. And every time those two were more than, I can't remember how many feet, but let's just say four feet apart. Yeah. Clearly the patient didn't have the boot on <laughs> because they their leg was not four feet long yeah. um, or five feet, whatever it was. And so they, they were able to tabulate all that data for weeks and weeks on a number of patients. And they showed that they only warm about 30% of the time. Wow. So, you know, that's not going to be effective if you're trying to heal 
an yeah. ulcer or if you're trying to heal a fracture or if you're only wearing it 30% of the time. So fiberglass is clearly a better option in, in most patients, I think, because they're not generally going to take it off. I've, all, I've had a couple of patients yeah. who got it wet in the bathtub and unwrapped the whole thing, and they're like, because you get something called, you know, we call it cage rage in internal fixation, but you can get a claustrophobia in some patients from being in a cast that they don't know what to do with. And if they don't tell you that's the problem, they're going to cut it off with a bandsaw, whatever it takes, yeah. which is kind of scary. I've had patients use reciprocating <laughs> saws, like the ones for drywall. I've had patients try to burn uh, them off. Oh, God. Yeah, so you need to make sure that you have that conversation with the patient because, you know, they might need, uh, you know, some vitamin X. Yeah, you're not treating just the fracture. You're treating right. the patient. Absolutely. And if they can't handle, you know, a cast, then you need to kind of flush that out yeah. <laughs> early on and not get surprised when they show up without it. <laughs> so here are some, you know, other things that we typically talk about. Crutches, knee scooter, that little peg leg device. I don't even know what it's called. Um, I go or something. Yeah, that yeah. Um, I think people don't realize how difficult crutches are to use, even yeah. when you use them correctly. And I think the knee scooters, knee scooters, great. Knee scooters are great. And I, I like the I go for younger, healthier Young. patients who are a little more dexterous. You know, I don't know that I would put an 80 year old in. No. in <laughs> I had a patient in it back when I was at the VA, yeah. uh, younger guy had to be in his 50s or 60s and young. Like, I mean, he was athletic. He would you know, play sports, you know, and he used the, the peg leg, the Igo, whatever it's called, and he thought it was phenomenal. I mean, he would walk, and you wouldn't even tell if you didn't, you know, see his uh, uh, cast behind him. Yeah. It works great. Yep, those are, they do, I think there are, there's a significant biomechanical advantage with those, yeah. Keeps them off their foot, whatever it takes. So, pediatric, pediatric fractures. fractures. Okay. So, typically we go with Salter Harris on this because peds, your younger population, their growth plates are still open. So it's a very weak spot or a common spot for injuries. And aside from that, if there's an injury to the growth plate, we're talking about, you know, possible future problems. You know, if it's an angulation or uh, an arrest of the growth plate where it kind of grows uh, slower than the opposite side. So it's something that we kind of take a uh, um, Crush injuries, yeah, you could have it just shut down, you know, yeah. and, and the patient would end up with uh, limb length discrepancy because of it. Yeah, and same thing when we're talking about going in and fixing these patients if they have a fracture that violates the growth plate, we try to put the fixation away from the growth plate. We're trying not to go across the growth plate. I think the rule of thumb is if you're doing anything um, fixation-wise that violates the growth plate, use K-wires. Right. Smooth K-wires that don't yeah. cause compression. Mm -hmm. oh, Simple example. That's yeah. awful. Oh, jeez. Poor kid and his cat doing a little parkour, <laughs> falling face first. I hope he, he survived that. That's awful. They say that if you go down those stairs, he might still be laying there today. Oh, man. So, so here's a little oh, ankle there, there fracture. There's your, there's your growth plate, and you're keeping your screws away from the growth plate. Yeah, simple, effective. Nice. Uh, this is a Salter Harris Type 4 for any of you who are following along. <laughs> here's another example. You can see the comminution through the fibula, and then you see that tibia right there. And then when you get that lateral, that's where you get multiple views. You get that little blowout through the back. This doc went ahead and got a CT scan, and they can see the, uh, the fracture a lot more accurately. And that's why this patient has three screws in the tibia, one lower, one higher, to get that compression across that fracture site. And then obviously for that fibula, uh, one of those straight plates. And as you can see the plate, these are one of the older plates. That's why we call it a square plate. Yeah, old synthy stuff. Stainless, yeah, works great. Stainless steel. 
Here's another fracture, fibular fracture, oblique, and your um, tibial avulsion fracture. Now, this is kind of a little trick question because this is not a salt Harris type fracture. This is a avulsion type fracture. There's no violation of the growth plate, so mm -hmm. luckily patient didn't have to worry about all that. But when we're talking about fixation, you can see the K-wires crossing the tibia growth plate and the fibular growth plate. Classic fixations for peds, just like we said, K-wires, smooth wires across the fracture site, across the growth plates, because we don't want to be the one injuring the growth plate. Right. Delta frames, sometimes used in children to avoid those growth plates, because sometimes they're comnuted, and we want to put plates and screws across them, but safer to distract and use that uh, uh, delta frame or uh, external fixator. And then obviously casting your patients. I think cast and peds work a lot better than boots. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, as far as ankle fractures go, I try to keep it real straightforward. We got a little technical there because they're fun yeah. to talk about. They're fun to do. But I think the some of the salient points would be that if you can walk on it, it doesn't mean it's not fractured. <laughs> that is a huge misunderstanding of what's going on. It is important, even if you've had surgery and internal fixation, to listen to your surgeon and make sure that you, you stay off it for an appropriate period of time, which could be four weeks, could be six weeks, could be eight weeks. Yeah, I tell um, patients six to eight weeks on average. Yeah. And if it's a large fracture, older patient, poor healing potential, I mean, I tell them up front, this might take up to 12 weeks. Yeah. We'll get serial x-rays. Sometimes we'll get a bone stim if needed. Um, there's a lot of literature out there as far as like supplements, calcium, vitamin D, whatever you want to take. I mean, I just tell them, take everything. There's no harm in taking these type of things. And there are some patients that we clearly probably should run vitamin D levels on. Yeah. And I, I do that from time to time uh, using supplements as well. I used um, to prescribe like Forteo and things like that if they were like osteopenic. But now I've kind of trended away from that and let their primary take care of that stuff because they've been following them for longer. Right. I think the other aspect of this that's important to note is that um, most people will lose about a percentage of their bone mass every year after the age of 35. And yeah. So if you're, you know, 65, 70 years old, you've lost potentially 35 or 40 percent of your bone mass naturally, even if you don't have osteoporosis, which would be, you know, an extension beyond that one percent per year. It's not a negotiation when we tell you this may take four to six weeks. <laughs> we yeah. had the ability to make bone heal faster. We could win the Nobel Prize. So short of that, it's based on x-rays when we're going to allow you to wait around this. We yeah. have to see some sort of evidence that there's bone healing occurring in such a way that we can assure that you're not going to make things worse by weight bearing on it. I read this article uh, that this doctor made this bone glue that... Um, I guess it has osteosynthetic properties, which you literally put across the fracture site, hold it in place. I don't know what the wait time is, but I'm sure it's short compared to bone healing. And uh, it's supposed to be something uh, in the works right now. They said that they don't expect it to be you know, on the market, FDA approved for the next five, 10 years, but um, might be something to look out for. Uh, yeah, that sounds, that sounds interesting. I know they're using synthetic bone substitutes in Charcot patients so yeah. that you inject right into the Charcot bone that's supposed to stabilize the bone. One of my colleagues, Andy Rader, has been doing an, a bunch of that in, up in Indiana. Oh, wow. um, he does a lot of external fixation and Charcot reconstruction and, and uses that to stabilize the Charcot bone. Uh, so that you know that's really fascinating and, and interesting as far as ankle fractures. So ankle fractures in diabetic patients are, are kind of a different, uh, sometimes a completely different animal. 
Yeah, if because they have neuropathy, peripheral arterial disease, right. uh, slower healing potential, pretty much. Well, and, and you have to consider some of them to actually be Charcot injuries. Oh, yeah. Right? So those are extremely challenging. We're much more likely to use external fixation in those patients because we don't want to violate the skin envelope. We don't want to make big incisions and, and deal with wounds that, that are going hard, to be hard to heal anyway. Um, and, and that's where, you know, external fixation using Elzar off circular rings, I think is, is really helpful. And it's what, what I've chosen to use for the most part in diabetic ankle fractures. Yeah. We'll do a lecture on one of those. If you, uh, if you I, guys are interested. Well, well, we're heading that direction. We gotta, we gotta do a shark lecture here soon because yeah. I think it's, um, it's a really fascinating aspect to our diabetic limb salvage care. More prevalent than people realize. Right. Mm-hmm. Very good. Well, uh, I think that uh, is a great primer on ankle fractures during the winter, the slip and fall injury that it is. So if I have an injury like this, you know, look for your local podiatric foot and ankle surgeon and, and get it checked out because you just don't know until you get an x-ray. Thanks again. Be safe, guys. All right, take care. This is The Pod Doctors. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to The Pod Doctors. We appreciate all of our listeners and subscribers. If you'd like to hear more, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and watch our videos on YouTube. Like, thumbs up, subscribe, and be safe. See y'all next time. Bye-bye.